You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Man, I'm so excited about uh, diving into uh, the service, uh, this new series. Um, Let me show you guys something real quick. Take a look at this. Uh, You are, are here. Okay? How many of you guys like maps? I'm like, I'm a map person. Whenever I'm reading something or traveling or doing something, I'm like, what's it, where's that in the map? What's the travel route? What's, you know, and I'm like constantly looking at maps. I love maps. How many of you guys like maps? Ooh, you know, you're not, it's not your thing. All right, well, maybe this is your thing. This one here, Disneyland. All right, have you guys ever been to Disneyland or Six Flags or something like that? And uh, you walk in and you want to like, okay, where's the you are here map, right? We're going to walk in. It's like, where are you? Go to the mall, right? And you're like, man, where's that store? Like, you got to get your bearings, right? All right, you got to find where I am at. Once you know where you, where you are, then you can, you can have the confidence to, to find where you need to be, right? And so we went, we've been to Disneyland several times, and we're like, you got to start someplace or you get lost. You just start wondering, where am I? I got to get to this ride, to this point. You got to find out where you are, where you stand first before you can before you can walk with confidence on where you're supposed to be going. The book that we're going to look at over the next uh, several uh, weeks is the book of Ephesians. And it's one big you are here sticker. One big tack in a map. In fact, uh, what happens if you're looking at a you are here map and the tack or the sticker has been moved? What happens? Confusion. Misdirection. You know, you, you start moving in a direction that you think you're supposed to be going, but you find out all it does is make you even more lost and more confused. In fact, it's so important that we understand where we are that we'll never be able to find where we're supposed to be going until we know where you are and who you are. And the book of Ephesians is all about that. Before we can run, we must first learn to walk. Before we walk, we must first learn to stand. And to know where we stand, we must know where we are. This is Ephesians. When do you understand that, you find this strong confidence to be able to walk. In fact, Ephesians is broken up into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 tells the believer where they stand in Christ. This is where you are. You are here, chapter 1 and 2. And then once you know where you are, the Apostle Paul then begins to explain to us a little bit what it means to walk out that understanding. And so chapter 3 and 4 is about how to walk out that understanding of who you are. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he says, man, when the world is, is going crazy and you really want to, man, go for it all in for Jesus, now you understand how you stand, now you know how to walk, now it's time to run and pursue and to chase after wholeheartedly the things of God. So there's a process of stand, walk, run in Ephesians. So we're going to jump in Ephesians chapter 1-1, and this is going to play out perfectly with a continuation of what's happened at Big Stuff. And so we're all on the same page. 1-1, here we go. says, Paul, an apostle. Now, first of all, I want you to know that an apostle is not some, like, mystical superhero type character in the Bible. Like, what is an apostle? Apostle, it simply means messenger. That's all it means. It means someone who is sent with a message or a delegate. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That means he's a delegate of Jesus. He's a messenger, an appointed messenger of Jesus. He was delegated by Jesus himself to give us Jesus' word. So an apostle and a delegate by the will of God, not his will, not your will. Somebody else didn't make an apostle. 
God made him an apostle, a delegate to God's holy people. That means this letter that we're about to read is for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, uh, I want you to eavesdrop on us for the next few weeks and, and understand a little bit more about what it means to walk in Christ and to know Christ and to be with him. Uh, you're going to get a lot out of this, even if you're just a seeker. But if you're a Christian, this is written for you. He says, uh, to God's holy people in Ephesus. We're going to look at that in just a second. It's in modern day Turkey. He says, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know this. He's writing a letter and we're eavesdropping. We're looking over his shoulder. I want you to imagine the Apostle Paul sitting at a table somewhere. Many believed he was in prison when he wrote this. And we're just kind of looking over his shoulder, right? Just kind of eavesdropping on a letter that he's writing to some friends. And, or maybe we're sitting in the back row of a church that, that Paul has poured his heart into, and we're just a part of that challenge. And this letter was read by Ephesians, uh, the church in Ephesus, and, and, uh, and then it was passed on and shared. Many consider this to be Paul's greatest letter. In fact, it's called the queen of the epistles. The word epistle means letter. So many call this the queen of the epistles. It, in a, it defines what it means to be a new person in Christ. To, to walk in a new society in Christ, and to be in unity with your family and community in Christ. So many try to uh, mystify God. You know, so many people try to make God esoteric and, and complicated and some kind of like mystical force that is unattainable. And so God, knowing that we have that problem, knowing him, he sent us something. He sent us Jesus. You know those dummy books? You ever read any of those? Anybody ever read a dummy book? I have. I've read a lot of dummy books, right? Dummies, you know, book for dummies, da-da-da-da, dummies, da-da-da. What's the book you read? Anybody shout out your dummy book? Networking for Dummies. Networking for Dummies? What was it? Shakespeare for Dummies? We're just... Mutual Funds for Dummies, right? Uh, I even read a couple of years ago when we were looking at the coffee shop, I read Coffee Shops for Dummies. <laughs> Still have three of them, all right? <laughs> I'm going to give them out to the team so we all can be dummies together. Well, here's what God does. He gives us Jesus. You know what Jesus is? He's, Jesus is God for dummies. Jesus gives us this ability to, to see, to touch, to watch, and to know God. Some of us, so we're like, man, God is so big and strange and odd and complex. You want to know what he's like? God simplifies. He says, let me, let me tell you what I'm like. Jesus. You want to know what my character's like, what I feel about people, what I feel about society and culture, how I treat people, how I am emotionally, what my character is, what I value. You want to know what Jesus is or what God is, you know Jesus. He's God for dummies. Well, here's the Apostle Paul. He writes Ephesians, and Ephesians is Jesus for dummies. Okay, while Jesus is God for dummies, Paul says, all right, guys, I know you're having a hard time understanding Jesus, maybe walking in him and understanding who he is. I'm going to write you a letter, and this is my Jesus for dummies, and that is the Apostle Paul's letter to Ephesus. Now, here's a little background story so that we know what's happening in Ephesus. It's a real place. It's called Ephesians because it's written to a city, a church in a city called Ephesus. And there's where it is. You see the big boot over there, so you kind of know the Mediterranean Sea, and that's Italy over there. Um, and so 
Ephesus is where modern-day Turkey is, and Ephesus was actually a pretty large city. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul actually planted the church, started the church there in Ephesus, and he lived there three and a half years, longer than any other church that he lived at. He loved that place. In fact, he considered that his favorite place. Many people believe that was his second home away from uh, uh, wherever God had him. He always went back to Jerusalem, went back to Antioch, and he went back to Ephesus. In fact, just before he was arrested, the last time he made a trip out of his way, called the elders, they met on the beach, cried on each other's shoulders and said goodbye. Because he, uh, he loved these people. He loved them deeply. Uh, and he, he poured his heart into them. It was a major poor city. It was super advanced. It's kind of like Dallas. In fact, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Dallas is the fourth largest metropolitan area in the United States. Uh, you have like Rome, uh, which was like the D.C. Uh, of, of the Roman Empire. And then you have like Corinthians, which is like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. And then you have Dallas, very modern uh, up-to-date city for the United States and Ephesus, a very modern, up-to-date, very busy, very complex. Uh, and this is what it looked like. It had massive arenas, it had one of the largest arenas in the Roman Empire, massive city. Uh, it had a temple on the bottom right is the Temple of Artemis, and uh, it was a fertility goddess. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Um, they All that's left of it is ruins. They actually rebuilt the whole thing to exact uh, size, and it exists today in Ephesus. It is a major city, major place. Uh, the community of Christ was growing rapidly there, and uh, to the point that, that they were causing all kinds of trouble in the economy, because that economy in Ephesus, it was kind of the place where you would go. Um, it was very occultic. It was a very occultic city, and, and you would go, you would hang out, you'd spend lots of money, uh, buy your idols, and then go back home. So it was a, it was a commerce City. Well, here comes Paul preaching the gospel, people getting saved, and all of a sudden the commerce, the major economy of that town, was turned upside down as people were dropping their idols and they weren't serving in the occult anymore. And so there was a riot that broke out. Circle somewhere on your notes, Acts 18, 19, and 20. It tells the story of Paul going in, leading people to Christ. Uh, man, he was waving handkerchiefs and people were getting healed. Uh, there was miracles and signs and wonders happening. Um, the whole city uh, broke into a riot. They tried to arrest Christians. He was secretly snuck out. And um, it was it was a great story. Uh, the Bible is anything but boring. Um, Paul loved these people. He loved them. And it's a challenge that he's writing them. Stand in God. Walk in God. Run in Him. You know, the ancient language that Paul wrote is Greek. And you have your Bible and Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14, we have periods and commas and everything. Paul wrote the whole first chapter with almost no punctuation. No periods, no commas, no dashes. 202 words of a, of a rock opera, you know. He opens up Ephesians with, oh, you know, just kind of belts out praise to God, praise to the Father, praise to the Son, and praise to the Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 5 is we stand strong in Jesus, uh, sorry, in the Father. Uh, Ephesians 6 through 12, we stand strong in Jesus. Ephesians uh, 1, 13 through 14, we stand strong in the Holy Spirit. So where do you stand? Where are you on the map? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to pick up and read together. If you're not, I want you to follow along with us and, and try to understand 
how much God loves you and cares for you. All right? He starts off with this. Ephesians 1 through uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I want you to write this down. Here's the first thing. You are rich. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are rich. You know what? You're richer than you think. You are richer than you think. He says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Jesus, you have everything you need spiritually and in this life. You have everything. That's known as the sufficiency of Christ. You know, a lot of people think, I don't have anything, man. This person over here has got a better car than me, a better house than me, a better life than me, a better job than me. God, man, I feel poor. Man, when you understand this, it will turn your life upside down. You can't walk with Jesus or run in that walk with God until you understand you are rich. You need to know where you stand. You are rich in Christ. In Jesus, you are richer than you think. God has not held back from you. His goodness. You know what the first lie of the serpent was to Adam and Eve? God's holding out. He doesn't want you to be as good as you can be. God's holding back to you his blessings. You know what? That's a lie. That voice that you hear that somehow tells you that God's holding out, that you're not as strong or as rich or as blessed as somebody else, that is a lie. You are rich in Christ. His gifts are abundant and richly flow to his kids. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 talks about it as well. In Ephesus, that, that large temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis, you know what it had inside of it? It had a meteor. This giant ball fell out of the sky and they put it in their temple and they worshiped this rock as a blessing from the heavens. And it's almost like the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, Ephesian Christians, you're not worshiping a rock. Your blessing is not some rock that you have to look at or go to. Man, your blessings from the heavens are greater than some boulder that fell from the sky, some meteor. He said, man, your blessings are every single blessing. God has not held back from you. You are blessed. We have everything we need in Christ. When we get this, we will be free from the things of this world. And you will be able to acknowledge blessing clearer and better and move forward with a great sense of, of, of thankfulness and gratitude when we see our riches, knowing where you stand. You are here. You are rich. If you're a follower of Christ, he goes on to say, Ephesians 1.4, he says, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Here's the second thing. Not only are you rich, but you are chosen. You are chosen. Long before God laid the earth's foundation, he had you in mind. He knew us. Think about this. Before God said, let there be light, he had you in mind. He knew everything about you before anything on this, in the galaxy ever existed. You did not exist but you were fully in his mind from beginning to end. He knew how you would be born. He knew where you would be born. He knew how you would be raised, the blessings and the 
difficulties. He knew that you would get a job, that you would lose a job, that you would get a job, that you would lose a job, that you would get a job. Maybe you're losing a job right now. He knows that. He knew that. He knows who you'd marry. For some of you, he knows who you'd marry again, you know. He knows your kids. He knew how many kids. He knew if you were or were not going to have kids. He knew the size, the shape of your kids and, and of your life. He knew before there was even light in the universe what would make you laugh and what would make you cry and what would move you before creation, before the foundations of the earth, before the creation of the world, he had you in mind. Psalm 139 says this so beautifully. It says this in verse 16. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body. He's talking about God. God, you saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before you even had a concept or an idea, before you even existed, God knew every single detail of your life, and it was established. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Check this out. God knows everything about you. He also knows your failures. He knows your sin. He knows your struggles. He knows what you're going through and the insecurities that you have. And guess what? He knows all this and he still says, how precious are your thoughts towards me. Even though he knows your sin, your struggles, your insecurities, your temptations, your mistakes, he still sees you as precious in his eyes, just like this precious baby up here. So sweet. It says, were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. You were on his mind from the beginning. From Abraham to the Apostle Paul, it is God who takes the first step to choose us. You know how Jesus is God for dummies? If we want to know how God chooses people, we need to look at how Jesus chose people. Sometimes he said, come and follow me. And some came. And sometimes he would come up to people and say, hey, Matthew. Come be my disciple. Hey, Peter, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And then sometimes he skimmed over other people. This is something, it's interesting about how Jesus chose people. He chose some people, and he didn't choose other people. That's a trick question. <laughs> that, that's like, what? What does that even mean? I don't understand how that always works out, but it's important to understand that God chooses specifically for his purpose and will. Sometimes it's to come and follow me, whoever so will, you know, and, and you come. And then, and then there's instances where the Bible defines Jesus as very specifically calling individuals and not calling the person next to them. How does God choose? What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. It means you are not random, okay? It means that when God chose you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are chosen. And if you are chosen, that means you are not a mistake, you didn't stumble into your faith. You have meaning. You're not born by mistake. You, were, you may have been the oops baby, but you were the oh yes baby from God. You know, you were exactly what God had planned. Every even unplanned or unintentioned or un, maybe uh, uh, a, even a bad situation or negative situation baby can be a God baby because God doesn't make mistakes. And when he chooses, 
He does it with an intentional purpose and plan in mind. You are alive for a reason. You have a purpose. You were meant to do more than just survive. You are not random. Here's what it also means. It means that you have no ability to boast about it. That means you can't brag about it. That means if God chose you, you didn't choose him. All right? That means that you don't have the ability to save yourself, but God has every ability to work in you to save you. All right? That means that when you come to Jesus, it's not on your own efforts, but it's on his provision. So you have no ability, no power, no, no room to be braggadocious. Well, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I was like, man, I was, uh, well, good, but it wasn't you. If you're truly a father, that's Jesus in you, man. You have no ability to boast. Romans 3.10 says, there is no righteous, no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. No one. If you want to know God, the Bible says it's because God wants to know you. If you desire to know God, it's because the Holy Spirit is drawing you. The Bible says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You have no ability to boast about your part to play in this, in this process. That's pretty awesome. Keeps us humble and keeps us aware of who is really totally in charge of our life. Here's what else it means. It means that you have a purpose. Because God chose you, as it says, before the foundations of the earth, that means you have a purpose. Here's the purpose. He says he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. What does that mean? The word holy means different. Turn to your number and say, man, you are different. <laughs> the word holy does not mean perfect. The word literally means different. God is holy. That means he blows the perspective, the cage, the box he blows the perception of what you think God is to pieces. He's different than what you can imagine. He's different than what you think God should be and how God should act and how God should respond. He is holy. He's different. He is without fault, and he is holy. And the Bible says he is holy. He is different. He is unique. And if you're a big stuff, he is an original, and he's called you to be holy, to be unique, to be an original. God designed you and called you with a purpose to be holy, be different, and blameless in his sight. That means to reflect God's goodness. You know what you are? If you are chosen, you are a mirror. And when people see you, they should see the reflection of God in you. We are chosen to stand out. We are chosen to reflect his goodness. This issue of chosen is so divisive. It's like the Hatfield and McCoys. Anybody know who they are? They're like this hillbilly feuding family in the history of the United States. It's a pretty amazing little history story uh, of the South. Uh, two families at war for generations and generations. And when we think about this whole idea of what it means to be chosen, it's like people get their guns out, you know, and they're like lines are drawn. And it's like friends and foes and enemies are distinguished. There's basically two main groups that I want to mention. There's a variety of perspectives in between, but the two main groups are Calvinism, which was uh, named after a guy named John Calvin, who was German. And then there was a guy named Jacob Arminian, 
who's, uh, and they're, his, this idea is known as Arminians. So you got Arminians and you have, uh, um, you have Calvinists. And, and these two views, by the way, Jacob was a Dutch. So you have these, and they were contemporaries. That means they were alive about at the same time. It was right during the Reformation. Uh, the scriptures were, were for the first time in thousands of years in the hands of anybody that wanted to read it. And so these ideas were formulating about uh, God's perspective and views fresh for the first time uh, for a long time. And so Calvinists, they emphasize predestination. God irresistibly reaches out and draws you in. Now, in the predestination camp, there's differences on, they have a double predestination for some. That means not only are some predestined to heaven, but some will say some are predestined to hell. And there's arguments within that group about how much predestination there is. Well, then there's the Arminians, and the Arminians, they like to emphasize choice. And they believe that God reaches out, taps you on the shoulder, and then you choose to respond. Some argue, even in that camp, that once you choose, you can't unchoose. And then some will say, once you choose, you have the choice, again, to unchoose. And so there's squabbling in this family. So there's squabbling over here, and there's squabbling over here. But both acknowledge the exact same thing, that God starts the work and finishes the work in us. So they have a lot more in common than they have apart. But boy, do they fight. Calvinists lift up the sovereignty and absolute power of God, while Arminians like to focus on the responsibility of the believer and God's mercy. And it is a cage fight, y'all. It is Hatfield and McCoy war. Some, even when they meet you, if you say you're a Christian, they like to like ask certain questions to see if you're a Hatfield or McCoy. And they're like, once they figure it out, they go, oh, I got you figured out. And then they like either align with you or they draw a line from you, right? And they divide. And it's kind of funny is that uh, the truth is, is that the Bible clearly talks about our responsibility in our choices with God. And the Bible powerfully expresses God's supremacy and that he cannot be stopped. So how do we work all this out? Here's how. You ready? Here's how you work it out. I don't know. I don't know. Because the Bible is, is beautifully expressive in both of those. The tragedy is that so many move from learning how to live and walk in Christ to arguing about it. And all of a sudden, their perspective, their tradition becomes the argument by which they put their flag in the ground. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, and I love this. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the Lord. There are just some things that we're not going to know. Uh, Larry Osborne, he's a pastor. He, he likes to call it fourth dimension truth. All right? Let me put it this way. I have a piece of paper. That's two dimensions. All right? If I had a two-dimensional uh, stick figure and, and I put a cube, like a Rubik's cube next to him, he, he could not understand a cube. You know, I'm looking at all these sides. All he sees is one side, period. And if I try to show him another side, all he does is see a, a cube with a different color. Or a square, sorry, a square with a different color. Two dimensions can't understand three dimensions. Three dimensions, that's what we are. We live in a three-dimensional world. We have a hard time understanding multidimensional concepts. God is a multidimensional being. So I believe that there are certain things in the Bible that I would call, uh, Larry calls, fourth dimension truth, and that is things that we will someday stand before God and go, oh, now I get it. 
I was wrong, <laughs> or I was right, or maybe I think most likely we'll get there and go, oh, we were all wrong, right? It's like there's this sense that the Bible says some things belong to the Lord to understand, and then some things are given for us to walk in. You can end up wherever you end up on that spectrum. I have one that I lean towards myself, but at the end of the day, what we teach must be out of verse 5. It says, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, that we focus on how to live a life that honors Jesus, not arguing about it, but lifting up and living out Jesus for his glory. Okay? So you are chosen. Turn to your name and say, you are chosen. Okay? Ephesians 1.4 goes on to say, it says, in love he predestined, that means he picked us, for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Here's the third thing. Not only are you rich, not only are you chosen, but you are his child. You are a son and a daughter of God. Here's the biblical truth. Are you ready? Not everyone in this room is one of God's kids. That's the reality of the Bible. Not, we're not born kids of God. We're not born children of God. We are all born loved creations of God who God cherishes and loves, born in the image of God, but we are not all of God's children. Some of you in this room are God's children. Some of you are not yet. The desire to be loved, to, to belong, to be wanted, to be chosen, to be cared for, the desire for family. There are kids in the in the system, the foster care system and adoption system, that are without a family, and all they want and desire is to be wanted. You know, I grew up moving all the time, and, and I had, my family was just so crazy, so upside down. And, and I had uh, a father that wasn't present. I had a mom that was trying her best to be a single mom and a dad to us. Um, and, and there was so many things going on. I just was just so hungry to know God. And this was a breakthrough in my life. Paul says that we are adopted through Jesus Christ. This is what it means. It means that in Christ, we have a perfect father. Some of you guys, you have had a, a pretty, pretty bad experience with your dad. Some of you, your dad is somebody you don't want to be. Some of you, your dad is, has given you a great example of, of our father in heaven, and he's a glimpse of heaven. However, a lot of us, uh, we have a dad, and we're like, man, uh, it didn't turn out so great. I don't want to be like him. There's like good dads, bad dads, and then just dads. They're just there, you know. It's not good or bad. It's just he's around. Um, but let me tell you something. When you're adopted into the family of God, you have a perfect father. You have a perfect dad. And our heart cries out for dad. That's all I wanted my whole life. I just wanted my father. I just wanted a dad. And you know what I found when I became a follower of Christ? The Bible says he's a father to the fatherless. Here's the next thing. In Christ, we have family. And I love this. We have family. This room is filled with brothers and sisters. You know, my mother has passed away. My father has passed away. My older brother has uh, passed away. And, um, you know, I have an older sister who, who I'm not real close to. Um, we, uh, we love each other, but we're not super close. And, uh, but I have family. You know, I have family. I have brothers and sisters right here. I have my brother right here in the front row and sisters, friends who are my family. You know, I have you. I have spiritual moms and dads all around me. You know, that's what you get. 
That's where you stand in Christ. You have family. It's the heart of every person. And this is the next one. Because in Christ we are loved and we are wanted. So we have a perfect father. We have family. And you're wanted. You know what? Some people are like, well, I, you love me because you have to. Well, that may be true. <laughs> but you know what? In Christ, not only am I loved, but I'm wanted. Isn't that great? You see... You guys, I not only love you, I like you. <laughs> it's, like, it's not just because I have to. I, I really like you. I like, you know, I get to know you, and we're different. We're unique, and we, have, we're, we, we live out the personalities that God gave us, and, and I like you. We, we don't have to be the same. But in Christ, we are wanted, and we are loved. Once a spiritual orphan in Jesus, we are now children of the king, no longer outside God's family. This is a positional move. This is God saying, you are an orphan, plucking you out of that obscurity and loneliness and dropping you into a family. It's a positional change. I am now in the position of God's family. You are his child. It's a positional move. We become a son and a daughter. There's two examples of adoption in the Roman Empire at the time that this was written. Two perspectives. The first one is this, is that there were unwanted people. These were the throwaways. The Roman culture was notorious for uh, families, for people, kicking out people who were disfigured or uh, uh, low intelligence uh, or sick families. People would just kick them out into the streets. And their streets were loaded with, with just the undesirables, the untouchables. And they were unwanted. They were abandoned. Or sometimes they were sold away. Um, uh, most legal adoptions in ancient times were not infants but teenagers and young children who the parents just didn't want anymore. But adoption literally saved people from a life of destitution, starvation, and sex slavery in the ancient world. That's what happens today around the world as, as uh, ministries like Youth with a Mission and ministries that connect with those that are helping these kids connect with people, helping them get off the streets. This is the context, and they said, you're adopted. It's the unwanted. Come on into the family. And then there's a second perspective is that there were people who were wealthy that would adopt because they didn't have any kids. And they knew that if they didn't have any kids, all of their possessions would go to extended families or to the local government. So you know what they would do? They would adopt young men and say, you are now fully, legally, 100% my heir. And so when I pass on, I'm giving everything I have to you. And so people would adopt for that reason too. Here's the picture we get. When we become children of God, the one had become wanted. And we have full legal rights to the father's inheritance. We become his kids. These are the images that they had in their mind. In Christ, we are full-fledged. Not kind of, sort of. You're not kind of a son or kind of a daughter. You are full in regards to the rights, privileges, and benefits of being part of the king's kids family. You have access to the father. Let me tell you something. I spent the week at camp, and I love teenagers. I've been in youth ministry for over 30 years. I love teenagers. But there's only two kids that have access to me 24 hours a day. My kids, right? As much as I love all those kids in that van and all the kids at, the, at camp and the guys that I roomed with, you know what? My daughter has my ear anytime she texts, anytime she calls, anytime she knocks on the door because she, as my kid, has access that nobody else has. You know what? You, as a son and a daughter of God, have access to the, to the father of all 
like nobody else has. You can go to him whenever you want. You can talk to him. You can ring his bell, talk to him, make his phone call, sit on his lap, whatever. You can talk to him. You are his son. You have access that is direct. And they can come to me freely and confidently without fear of rejection because I'm dad. That's the kind of relationship we have when we are adopted. Two responsibilities of one of God's kids. The first one is this. You are to live holy. That's what it says, Ephesians. He says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, we talked about that a second ago. We are called to be different. Here's the second thing. We are to love holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. We are to live holy and we are to love holy. Holy. Ephesians 5.1 says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says, listen, kids of the king, sons and daughters of God, as God has loved you, you are now to love the world the same way. The way that God loves you is how we are called to love the world. How did God love you? I want you to think about it for just a second. What is it about God's love in your life that stands out for you? For some of you, it's, a, it's that God loved you in spite of yourself. In spite of your sin, in spite of your mistakes, in spite of your failures, God loves you and calls you home and into his family. That is the way you are to love others. For some of you, it's love that is consistent, that is faithful, that has never let you down, that has always been one to support you and encourage you, a love that is always close, that can be counted on. That is the kind of love that we are to wholly give, not just to the ones we love, but to that kid across the lunch table, to that person on the other side of the cubicle, to the person who, who drives us crazy at work, to that teacher. We are to love holy the way that God loves us holy and indiscriminately. Let me tell you something. When my kids were little, they thought I was a superstar. Right? And then they grew up and the world jaded them. And now they don't want to hang around me anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Now my kids, uh, they still love me. But how many of you know that when your kids were little, they just wanted to be just like you? They wanted to walk like you. They wanted to talk like you. They want to be like attached to you. You're like, give me some space, <laughs> you know. They were around you all the time, and they wanted to be you. That's the nature of a child and a, and a father or a mother. You know what? When we are in this relationship with God that's intimate and special, by nature, we begin to imitate our dad in heaven, our father in heaven. We begin to look like him, talk like him, walk like him. We want to be like him. This is the nature of that relationship because we're children of God. We are to be the greatest lovers on the planet of the earth. Sadly, we're often identified as haters and people who walk in judgment. But you're adopted for his good pleasure, not for yours, for his. There's only two types of kids in this room, only two, and you're one of them. You're either a spiritual orphan or a child of God. That's it. There's no, there's no I'm kind of a child. There's no I'm, I'm working my way out of the orphan stage. No, you're either an orphan or a child of God. That's it. How do you become a child of God? Well, John the Apostle tells us this in John 1.12. He says, 
but to all who did receive him, to those who believed or trusted him, relied and followed him, uh, his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians says it this way, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Faith in Jesus. You might be a spiritual orphan today. You don't have to be. You can know that you are rich. You can know that you are chosen. You can know that God is with you and that you are his kid. And you can know, this is the last one, Ephesians 1.6, King James Version says, to the praise of his glory grace by which he has accepted us in the beloved. Here's what I want you to write down, the last one. You are accepted. You are rich. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm rich. All right, turn to another, another neighbor, uh, neighbor and say, uh, I'm chosen. All right, turn to somebody else and say, I am one of God's kids. And turn to somebody else, if you can, and say, I'm accepted. Okay, I was always the weird kid. I know it's hard to believe. I was always the weird new kid. We moved so much. We would, like, parachute right into the middle of the school year. So I was like, all the friend circles had already been established. And I'm like, hey, and nobody wants to be my friend. So I'm, like, trying to figure out my place almost every year. I was always the weird new kid. And I, and I always wanted, I was, you know, I was never made it to sports teams because, the, you know, the other guys had already been there for a while and they'd already been pre-picked. Uh, you know, when it came to physical education, you know, schoolyard pick, I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Nobody knew me. Uh, I wasn't friends. So I was always one of the last guys picked. I was excluded. I was a little bit odd on the outside. I had to really push through to make any friends. Um, uh, the things that we sometimes do to fit in uh, are sometimes self-destructive and just plain stupid, just to be accepted, just to feel apart, just to feel love. Well, guess what? In Christ, I'm chosen. And guess what? In Christ, I'm accepted. And in Christ, I'm one of his kids. Let me tell you something. When you realize that you are accepted by Jesus Christ in Christ, it makes living and sleeping and walking and stepping out a whole lot easier. Let me put it this way. You don't like me? It's okay. I'm accepted. God loves me. You didn't choose me. You didn't invite me. You didn't want me to be a part of your family, your team, your game, or whatever, of your friend circle. You didn't choose me. Well, that's okay. God chose me. God chose me. What, what, my family's splitting up. There's conflict in the family. I feel like it's my fault. My, my dad's distant. My mama's distant. She's working all the time. What do I do? It's okay. I have a father in heaven who loves me perfectly. If you don't accept me, that's fine because God receives me. He picks me to be on his team to shape the world. That's where I stand. You might have gone your whole life to try to find out where you fit. Struggling to find acceptance from a mom or a dad, trying to find a friend circle that will be there for you, maybe a marriage where you feel no more love or acceptance. God accepts you, and he loves you. You might feel left out, left behind, or left alone, but in Jesus, you are rich in so much. I want you to write this down, last thing. God accepts you as you are, but... He doesn't want you to stay 
the way you are. He loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. Because the way you are is kind of hurtful. It's pretty selfish. It's inconsiderate and it's self-destructive. He loves you too much to let you stay that way. But he loves you. He accepts you. He welcomes you. You don't have to stop doing anything to come to Jesus. Come as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. So what Ephesians does, he says, find out who you are, and then let's learn how to walk this out. Who we are, stand. How to walk it, the next couple chapters. And then how to run the race that God has shaped for us. So far in Christ, you are rich, chosen, adopted, and accepted. Is that what you saw this morning when you looked in the mirror? I hope it is this afternoon. Let's pray. God, I thank you that, Lord, you have called us. Apart from Christ, you are not spiritually rich, chosen, adopted, or accepted. But in Christ, you are blessed far beyond you can imagine. You are favored. Right now, you are loved. Everyone in this room is loved. But some of you, you're not a child of the king. But you can become one right now. John 1.12 says that if anyone receives what Christ has done for us, his finished work on the cross, and you believe, that means you trust and follow him and who he is and what he's done, then you are given the right to become a son and daughter. God, I pray if there's anyone here that's not one of your kids. God, if you've chosen them, but God, I pray that they will respond this morning through faith. I'm going to lead you in a, in, a, in a prayer. You can pray it any way you want, but I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and you can say it in your own words if you like. I, I would prefer that, but let's, let's just pray this. Between you and the Lord, we just take a moment and say, uh, particularly those of you that are ready to become children of God, say, Jesus, here's my life. Go ahead and tell him, Jesus, here's my life. Forgive me of my sin. The cross was enough to cleanse me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for receiving me. Thank you for drawing me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.